Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Guest speaker today. He's a, he's a friend of mine, um, Daryl Mady. Some of you may recognize him. Some of you may recognize the name. That's because he's also a friend of Trey's. And he has preached here before many years ago, a couple times, a couple times, many, many years ago. Um, uh, I met uh, Daryl, this is going to age me just a little bit. I met Daryl back in 1993 when we were students at Covenant Seminary, and Joel Keen was there with us. We, we, we all met back then, and, and I, I didn't know Daryl as well back then. Um, you know, even in seminary, there's different groups you run in and different groups you hang out with. And, and he, he was in the smart group and I was not. And so uh, it was one of those things where we didn't necessarily run in the same groups. But since we wound up in the same denomination and, and wound up in the same city, we've, we've become good friends. We've gotten to spend more time together. And I can truthfully and honestly say of all the pastors that I know, and I know a lot of pastors, of all the pastors that I know, he is truly one of the most knowledgeable and wisest men that I know. So I am thankful that he is here today, uh, grateful that he was able to take some time to come and worship with us and bring God's word to us, and I pray that uh, it'll be a blessing to you all. Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh, good. We have some, some life here this morning. Good morning to the people who are joining us online. Uh, I want to greet you in the name of our Lord, and I hope this is an encouraging time. Um, uh, I, I did preach here a, a while ago, although I might have looked very different. I used to have a, a goatee that was pretty thick down here and very gray. And when I shaved it off during the, uh, the COVID uh, lockdown and everybody told me I looked 20 years younger, <laughs> so I decided to not grow it back. Uh, but it's really good to be here with you this morning. Trey is a good friend, and I'm glad to be um, helping him out and helping Darden, helping you out as well. Now, you've just finished a series on the parables, correct? On the kingdom of God. And Trey is about to launch into a, a more expansive look at the covenants that, that we see through the scriptures. And this is sort of a bridge between the two, looking at kingdom, which is a major focus uh, of this idea of covenant. Um, and, and just we're just going to talk about covenants and really uh, talk about the story of scripture and talk about the power of story. How many of you like stories? You like movies, books, you know, TV shows. Those are all stories. So if you like any of those things, you like stories. And stories can be very, uh, very powerful. Um, now, I know some Christians have reservations uh, about this series, but, but I've, uh, I've been impressed with the Harry Potter series. Uh, anybody, any Harry Potter fans here? There's some? Okay, this is good because I'm going to make reference to some, some Harry Potter things. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we sometimes we we're concerned about the magic that's, that's talked about there, but really the story is about um, friendship and about loyalty and things that appear one way but really are another. And there's a, there's a number of books uh, um, in that series. How many, how many stories are there in the Harry Potter series? Well, just, you know, there's, there's questions, for those of you online, there's questions about what I mean by that. Just give me your own reaction to that question. How many stories? There's one story. 
in Harry Potter. Many books, many subsets of stories, but there's really one story about Harry and his connection to Voldemort. And the Bible is exactly like that. There are many books, there are many subsets, there are many kind of episodes, but really there's one overarching story, one grand story, and we can trace that story through the covenant that God made with creation and with humanity and his redemption of it. And there, are, there are many different administrations of it. I'll talk about that in a moment. But, but it's one story, one thread, and it's not really a thread. It's more like a suspension bridge cable running through every text. And we're going to enter into that by looking at one passage at the beginning here. Really, we're going to look at a lot of different passages, but we're going to look at Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read that uh, for you, and you can follow along. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, and we see the Lord, typically it's in small caps there, that's his name. He uses his formal name, Yahweh. I, I, I revealed myself to Abraham, but I told you my name, Yahweh. I did not make myself known to them in that way. All, I also established my covenant with them. He didn't say I established a covenant. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to, to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in person and online, uh, and we ask that by your Spirit, we know that you connect us to each other, though we are separated uh, by miles, separated in location, you bind us together as one people and you bind us to yourself. Would you remind us of that great truth and the great comfort that comes from that truth? Father, remind us of your love this morning as we look at how you've bound yourself to us, and would that change us and make us more like Christ? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, we're going to be talking about stories and the power of stories this morning, and, and there was a, a, a very important literary uh, uh, work talking about stories, saying that there are really only seven kinds of stories, seven basic plots. Anybody familiar with that idea? Well, <clears throat> filmmakers talk about this a lot. I'm not necessarily endorsing that idea, but it goes like this. There are seven stories. First one, overcoming the monster where the hero sets out to defeat an evil force. And I'm going to use examples of this, and I'm always going to use a Marvel movie to talk about how these stories play out. So overcoming a monster uh, which threatens the, the, uh, the well-being of our hero or the, or the hero's land. So War of the Worlds is like that. Star Wars is like that. Thor Ragnarok is like that. Uh, then there's the rags to riches. Uh, a poor hero acquires wealth or power, maybe friends along the way. Sometimes they lose them and then gain them back and they grow as a person uh, on that journey. Aladdin is like that. Uh, trading places, for those of you who have seen that movie, is a little bit like that. And Captain America has elements of that. Uh, then there's the quest. A hero and companions set out 
uh, to get an important object, uh, facing temptations along the way, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Lord of the Rings, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, and then the first Avengers and the last Avengers movie, uh, Endgame, is like that. Then there's the voyage and return. A hero goes to a strange land. Uh, after overcoming threats and learning important lessons, they return home better. Uh, the Hobbit is like that. The Lion King. And the first Thor movie is like that. Then there's a comedy, which I, it's kind of hard to, to wrap our heads or, and our hearts around comedy. We tend to think of it a certain way, but it's really much broader. Typically, we think of it as a humorous character uh, that with a happy ending, um, but there's all kinds of mishaps along the way. But it can be a dramatic work in which the central theme is the triumph of the hero over adverse circumstances, result, resulting in a, a happy ending of some sort. Uh, it's more than humor. It refers to a pattern of conflict that becomes more and more chaotic and confusing. But at last, there's this last clarifying event at the end that makes everything clear. Uh, the majority of romances were like that. Actually, before the service started, I was listening to a conversation about all kinds of movies and, and uh, it was going on. It had nothing to do with me. But I was just thinking, oh, this is going to tie in well to the, to the sermon. And someone said, I, I just love, I love I love good com romant romantic comedies, and, and often uh, romances are like that, a series of mishaps, but you find your way to a clarifying and happy ending. Um, Bridget Jones' Diary is like that. Uh, the Big Lebowski is an idea, uh, and, uh, and then Guardians of the Galaxy, a great example of a comedy. There's tragedy story of a hero with major character flaws, which, which is ultimately their undoing. Um, and their unfortunate end evokes pity uh, at the end they came to Romeo and Juliet, Wall Street, if you remember that movie from the 80s. And uh, to a certain degree, you know, Marvel movies are pretty happy in general, but uh, Infinity War, very, very tragic end to that movie. And then finally, the last story is The Rebirth. Um, an event forces a main character to change their ways and become a better person. Groundhog Day is a great example of that. Uh, anybody, can anybody think of a Marvel movie that fits that? Anybody? Iron Man. Iron Man, the first in the Marvel series, is the great example of a rebirth. Doctor Strange actually is also like that too. Now, the Bible contains really all of these kinds of stories. Uh, and some people think of the central story to be like the, that comedy. Uh, not in a humorous way, but in a dramatic way. And in fact, uh, a, a great medieval author, Dante. You, are you familiar with Dante? Some of us are familiar with Dante's Inferno, but it's actually part of a much larger thing that he called the divine comedy uh, about God overcoming adverse circumstances, sin and death and the devil. Now, as we think about our stories and our interaction with God. Who is the hero of our story? Any guesses? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus is always a good answer in every church setting. Whatever the question is, it's God is the hero of our story, of our individual stories, but of the grand story as he overcomes our sin and wins us back. And really the fundamental question I want to ask you this morning, or put to you, is as we talk about the covenant of God, which can be theological in nature, is what is your response to this? What is your response to God's binding of himself 
to you in a way which causes him great pain. But he does it because he loves you. What is your reaction to that? Um, I want to lay out the structure of God's story and its implications for our lives and communities by walking through the stages of that story. And we can, we can label them as creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Some people like to use the word, word restoration, and I like restoration, but it makes us feel like we're returning back to the beginning, but actually God is completing things, so consummation maybe fits a little bit better. And if I can risk being irreverent, I want to talk about these stages in this way. Boy meets girl, and they fall in love. Boy loses girl. Boy wins girl back, and they live happily ever after. And what binds these parties together through those ups and downs is covenant. Let's look at the first one. Boy meets girl. It's in the creation. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, I, I was trained as a scientist. I love astronomy. This, the, the beginning of the Bible just fascinates me as I think about the grand scale of the universe and the creation. From nothing, God calls the universe into being, leaving the nature of his own existence a bit of a mystery, underlining his power, his majesty, his eternality. And this God then makes humanity in his own image. He makes us like himself, not like the glory of, uh, of the celestial majesty of nebula or the, the grandness of hypergiant stars, which are great all in of themselves. No, he makes us even better. He makes us in the likeness of the divine. We're made, therefore, to be in relationship with the divine. Male and female, he created us. And Adam and Eve are put in the garden to shepherd and to shape it. They were to grow their family and the family of humanity. And they were to worship and bow as the created before the creator. And the, the trees, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood as sacramental symbols of God's abundant life that he's giving them, but also the humility they should have in worship of God. Don't, this far and no further, don't eat of the tree. Will you worship me? And Genesis 1.31a says, God saw everything he had made and it was very good. It was awesome. I recently built a deck on the back of my house. And after many failures and learning, I, I, I finally finished the decking and I looked at it and I got, I, I mean, it's good. And I, I took lots of pictures of it. I don't normally kind of celebrate my own accomplishments, but I was like, oh, this is so good. This is awesome. And that's what God did. This is good. A promising start to our romance. And it sets the stage for everything else. There's this binding relationship between God and his creation that's headed up by Adam. He's, you could think of Adam as sort of a facilitator, a point man, the head of the covenant relationship, a mediator maybe of sorts. And we don't see the word covenant here in Genesis 1, but Hosea, the prophet, talks about the relationship between humanity and God as a covenant in the garden. It says, Adam transgressed the covenant. Okay, so there was a covenant relationship there. And like all good stories, all the important stuff in the story that's going to play out in the scriptures are there at the beginning, even if they're not named. Just like in Harry Potter, if you know the story of Harry Potter, Vold, in that first book, you have Voldemort. You have the cloak of invisibility. Which you, in the first book, you think, oh, this is just a cool thing. Oh, no, no, no. It's a hallow, those of you who know the story. And, and that, that, that's going to shape things 
to come and be very important in the last book. And then there's a scar on Harry's head, which he thinks he just got a wound. No, it's a sign that he's what's called a horcrux, which is actually helping Voldemort stay alive. And, and all of those things shape the rest of the stories and play essential roles in the final conflict in the last book. All the important things are right there at the beginning. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. And we could talk about the various aspects of covenant and get very boring with uh, the details of it. We talk about the parties and the stipulations, blessings and curses, signs and symbols, the, the mediator. But here's the thing. God uses the covenant to give shape to us as people, to give shape to the creation. And he sends us on a trajectory for mission, but he does it in this bonded relationship that he has with us. God has purpose. How are you going to respond to that part of the story? God creates us and sets us on a trajectory. What are you going to do with that? Will we look to God to define us? Will we relish in his provision? Or will we look to other sources of provision? Will we look to ourselves? I was having a conversation uh, with a very accomplished businesswoman the other day. And uh, she was talking about how she's at a new church. And, and while she's not crazy necessarily about this, that, or the other thing, she said, but I'm challenged there to walk with God. And I'm a pretty capable person. And sometimes I just think I'm pretty handy on my own. Are we going to trust our handiness or are we going to look to God? This is the basic question we have to face every day. Where do I find life? Where do I find definition? And as our culture more and more profoundly rejects the scriptural narrative, rejects the definitions that God has given us, we see the confusion. We see the chaos. Even in the pandemic, oh my gosh, we are flailing left and right as a culture. And then there are those in the Christian church and the progressive side say, well, we need to embrace the changing definitions. And then there are those in the conservative Christian culture who respond in outrage to the changing definitions, an outrage that tends to lead us to be distracted from our own compromises. It's easy not to see our own failings when we're mad at someone else for theirs. And we have to remember that what we need is not outrage. We need to show compassion while holding our convictions, but we need to show compassion. When there's a child who's confused and chaotic and they're lashing out and they're yelling and they're screaming, uh, what they need is a patient, firm, but loving parent to come alongside them to reach him or her, not a domineering scold. We need to love the world better, firmly but compassionately. And we need to take a hard look at ourselves as well. Where are we letting things other than God define us and guide us? Now, it would be our hope that we would never be fall to that temptation, but we know from that, the first story that Adam and Eve did, and, and so do we. Um, boy loses girl. There's alienation. Um... They were not content to be like God. They wanted to be gods themselves, define themselves. And the lovers were alienated, and misery and death became a part of the story. I, I was thinking, as the person who was doing the introduction to worship service, I thought, she just preached the whole sermon right there. Verse 
Notice God's approach to Adam and Eve's failings. Verse 9 in chapter 3 of Genesis, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Like God didn't know. Where are you? It is a compassionate call back into relationship. He calls to his frightened and ashamed children back to their loving father. And there is punishment and there are consequences, but there is also hope. He says in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about the serpent here, who tempted Adam and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, you're going to strike the one that I'm going to send. Someone's going to come as a deliverer, as a redeemer, and you're going to do him harm, but he's going to kill you. Paul described the circumstance in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There's a lot there in this passage that we talk about in terms of covenant theology and federal headship, but the point here is that we're seeing it's all connected. Adam's sin is connected to everything that happens later, the breaking of the covenant, and that he is a type of the one to come. There's that cable, the idea of a mediator. Adam served as the first covenant head, and he failed, but there's other covenant heads, and Jesus is going to come as the ultimate covenant head to put all things right. Here's, again, here's the point. God has a purpose, and just as we sang earlier, he will not be denied. He will not be thwarted. It's not like in the, in the garden, God came with a purpose and, and Adam and Eve did something unexpected. He's like, oh no, oh, I got to throw it all out. He will not be thwarted. He will do something about it and it doesn't include casting us aside. I felt like that was said earlier in the service too. Now I didn't get permission to tell the story so I'm going to leave some details out. But a father recently told me a story of, a much, of, a, of his son, who was really much younger than he is now, who in an uncontrolled moment uh, kicked a fence and knocked out some slats. And of course, for young children, the group that was there, this is a scandal. Oh, oh no, you broke the fence. And they run and they go tell parents, do you know what so-and-so did? And the father comes to the son to assess what's happened, but also how the son is doing. The son currently is wearing a scowl. And he comes to his son and asks him, hey, what's going on? And the son says, dad, I know, I know, I know. I've ruined our relationship. It's over. You hate me. Or something to that effect. And the father reiterates something he has said scores of times before. You need to know this. You are my son. And I love you. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's apostasy. But if we are faithless, if we fail, he remains faithful. 
for he cannot deny himself. He is bound to us. We should all learn to live in the confidence that our failures will not cause God to reject us. That he pursues us. He's asking us all the time, where are you? You've run away again. Come back. What would it look like to love our families this way? To love our neighbors this way? To love our communities this way? And then we need to spend some time working on that. And there's a lot to be upset about. There's lots to be very fearful of. But God doesn't approach us in fear that we're going to reject him. He's firm, and he does discipline, but he's shameless in his pursuit of us. We need to spend some, some time thinking about how do we be shameless in pursuing the people around us. God won't be thwarted, so what is he going to do? What will he do to put the world right, to get his girl back? He's going to redeem the world. He's going to suffer the consequences of our failure and succeed in the mission that we abandon. And we see the Lord connect redemption of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt to the covenant God made with Abraham, which is connected to the covenant made with Noah and the covenant made with Adam because they're all really the same bonded relationship. I'll read the passage from Exodus again. Exodus 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Basically, he's saying, look, it's all the same relationship, but I'm telling you more. As time goes on, I'm revealing more and more. It's getting more and more intimate, and now you know my name. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they were lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, from whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I've remembered my obligations. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. <coughs> and I will, wow, that was quite loud. Um, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And there it is again, this bonded relationship. And, and often we misunderstand this. Sometimes we, we, we think of this more in terms of, hey, you belong to me, and I'm God. It feels almost arrogant. But that's not what's going on here. This is a statement of commitment and belonging. I will be your God. That's a high place of authority, but it's also high obligation. High sense of responsibility. You will be my people. He has claims on us again, but he's going to be faithful to us as well. What lengths will God go to to undo the consequences of the fall? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see a little more, a little more elaboration in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God is revealing himself more and more over time. And in the fullness of that time, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our redemption, yes, it's the forgiveness of sins, but it's the restoration of relationship. We are his children, and he loves us. The triune God sent himself and God the Son to win the verdict of righteousness for us, to face the verdict of treason, suffer the sentence of death, both physical and spiritual, and then he overcame it in the resurrection. He wins. That's how far God is willing to go for you. Now, as a father, it's hard to imagine the lengths I wouldn't go to for my children. Uh, Some 18 years ago, my wife Mary and I had a set of identical twin girls. We also had a 21-month-old at the time. So we had three under two, and we didn't have family in town, so we were kind of on our own. Uh, Those were hard times, and we were not good with each other because we didn't get any sleep. I mean, I got very little sleep, and Mary got no sleep whatsoever. No sleep, going to work, come home, working harder at home than I am at work, kind of glad that I'm going to work. My wife mad at me for going to work because I'm abandoning her. And there's countless hours standing in my walk-in closet with one of my twins, you know, just rocking her to sleep. Okay, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. You know, lasting way longer than you want to imagine. But in those long, dark hours, I forged a bond not easy to describe to those girls. Those girls are mine. And I am theirs. I'm theirs. Whatever successes, whatever failures, whatever joys, whatever heartaches, I am along for the ride. And I will do whatever I can to see good come to them. And that's how God thinks of you. That's the bonded relationship he has with you. He gives the promise of a redeemer to Adam. He restates the mission uh, to, to multiply over the earth to Noah in Genesis 9. He reveals the dynamics of righteousness through faith, faith to Abraham. He delivers his people from physical slavery through Moses. He promises an even greater deliverer to David, the, the son of David who would sit on the throne forever. And those are the covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham, Moses, David, and finally brought to fulfillment in Jesus, God will not be thwarted. He will make the covenant of creation stand through redemption, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God makes good on his promise. It's one grand story. And what's your response to that? What is your response? Will you let God's pursuit of you melt your heart and lead you to stop defining yourself trying to find your own significance through your work or through being the best mom ever or whatever it is. Will you let him pronounce over you, you are my child and I love you. Now, of course, the story's not over. Uh, While Jesus has experienced triumph over death, we still await that consummation. Uh, We see the great triumph in Revelation 21, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I repeat it over and over again to myself. And he who was seated on the throne, okay, the authority, said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
We wait in the in-between time between our redemption and the happily ever after. Now, it doesn't often feel like the road to victory, does it? I mean, that's, that's not my experience. And particularly in the pandemic, where we really feel like we're waiting. It feels not like triumph. It feels more like the 2011 uh, season of the, of, the, uh, of the St. Louis Cardinals. And if you remember that season, man, this is a season filled with mediocrity and disappointment and, 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 and unmet expectations. It was, it was just, ugh, meh. Until the end. And then they kind of squeaked into the playoffs. I mean, really, barely squeaked into the playoffs. And then they were facing the best. Now, I might be biased because Philadelphia Phillies are my first love. But they faced the best team in baseball that year. They had the best record. And I remember, you know, and, and the symbol of that series was the intimidating rally squirrel, you know. I was at the rally squirrel game. Uh, and they stretched it out to, to the five games, the five, the five game series, and they they won the last game. It was a one run game. Barely got on to the National League Championship Series. Faced the Brewers, beat them, and then faced and then and then faced the the, um, uh, the Rangers. And there was one game, man. Game six, man. This is like the Christian life. It was, it was like two different games. It was like Keystone Cops playing baseball out there. It was terrible. And then it got good. And what we remember is not the mediocrity and the disappointments and just the squeaking by. What we remember is David Freeze's home run in game six. Victory! That is the Christian life. As we await the happily ever after. When the uncultivated garden is presented as the garden city. When the tree of life is back at the center of our community, life and of celebration, when worship will be as full as God always intended, as diverse as God always intended. We're all one. What a vision. I can't, you know, as politically divided, as racially divided as our country is today, it is hard to imagine. But that is where God is taking us. Now, as we head towards an election with many diverse opinions, many deep divisions in our country, and sometimes even hatred in our heart, we tend to be driven by fear. Now, with this is our certain victory, with this picture, what do we have to fear, ultimately? Don't let your fear of something that is out of your control lead you to abandon God's way of loving other people, of loving pursuit, of compassion, of healing, because God is not out of control. No matter the results in November, God still reigns supreme. He still sits on the throne. Do you believe it? And is it working its way into the way you're behaving? So this is the grand story. I've been preaching for a while. This is a really hard subject to kind of get all in one sermon, so I apologize if I'm going a little bit long here. I know we got communion, which is the great sacramental symbol of God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. But this is the grand story. God wins. The purpose from the beginning stands. God makes it stand. God uses the power of story to teach us about his love. He uses the power of story to reorder our chaos. I want to talk about another movie now, not a Marvel movie. Anybody ever seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Some, some have. 
It's a movie about the making of uh, the movie Mary Poppins. And there's a scene in that that movie that talks about story making. Emma Thompson plays P.L. Travers, the cantankerous author of Mary Poppins, and Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney, who's seeking to persuade Travers to give him the rights to the book. And Travers is difficult, she's mercurial, she's unpleasant, but Disney finally figures out uh, that the matter of Mary Poppins and giving the rights is very personal for Travers. Uh, And the story is really about the redemption of her alcoholic father and her own perceived failures of him. And he goes and he meets her in, in her home in London and tells her, you know, we all have our sad tales, but don't you want to finish the story? Let it all go and not have a life dictated by the past. It's not the children, he's talking about Mary Poppins, it's not the children she comes to save, it's their father, Mr. Banks. It's their father she comes to save. It's your father. He says, give, give Mary Poppins to me, and George Banks will be redeemed. George Banks and all that he stands for will be saved. Maybe not in life, but in, imag- in imagination. Because that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again. And that's what the scriptural story does, the grand story, the story of God's pursuit of his people. It instills hope. Again and again and again, it restores order. And while the story does engage our imaginations, it's not just a story. It's true. What will you do with this grand story? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had here this morning and and for the great story you've told in the Scriptures. It's come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you for wisdom and guidance. We pray that our hearts would be melted by your love for us, even in the face of our sin and rebellion, and that we would turn to you in repentance and ask you to shape us again. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, would you use the sign of the covenant to remind us in, in a way that words can't that you gave yourself for us. That's how far you would go to redeem us. And would we leave this place changed by it? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.